Frankenstein is a literary vindication of the right of all creatures, no matter the circumstances under which they are made, to share love of another and companionship with other sensitive beings. There are two radical political dimensions of Shelley's argument for the right to share love, both made in the voice of the creature. First, that as an artificial being, he holds a right to share family and community alongside his father. And second, that it is not simply his cognitive and affective status as a sensitive and rational animal that grounds this right, but more crucially, his relational and ethical status as a sensitive being made by the artifice of another's reason, desire, and imagination. Like Milton's Adam, who is made from dust, the mysterious force of the divine mind, the creature comes into being through the application of the scientific theories of his father to dead matter. As with generations of humanity prefigured by Adam, the creature's madness defines him more than a particular materials or circumstances from which he was formed. This is a quote from Eileen Hunt's Artificial Life after Frankenstein. In today's episode of The Dolores Project, we will talk with Eileen about her research, her thoughts about Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, The Last Man, and the ethical and moral responsibilities we have to the objects, to the creatures, to the potential children that we craft with our own hands. Let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Dolores Project. Today I have a special guest, uh, Miss Eileen Hunt. Uh, Dr. Hunt is with us. She's a professor of political science and a fellow of the Nenovac Institute for European Studies and the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and the concurrent faculty in gender studies at the University of Notre Dame. Wow, what a mouthful. Eileen, welcome. So glad to have you. Thank you. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here. And I'm wondering if your project is called Dolores because of Westworld. Yes, actually, there's there's a two tiered or, or multiple layers to why I, I named it that. So actually, in the spelling, it is based off Dolores, how her name is spelled. But also Dolores is kind of a, um, a grandmothery name. Right. And so the idea is to to communicate these deep philosophical, um, scientific conversations in a way that everybody can understand and appreciate and conversate about. So that's kind of my esoteric thinking about why I named it the Dolores Project. But primarily, you're right, uh, it is inspired by Westworld, which I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, me too. Me too. For <laughs> sure. Uh, watching Westworld inspired a lot of the ideas that went into artificial life after Frankenstein. Yeah, it's a great show. Um, and I want to do episode one day just solely devoted to that show because it did, for me as well, spark a lot of conversation um, and, and research that uh, led to books and current conversations with wonderful people like yourself. So, Eileen, before we get into uh, Frankenstein and Mary Shelley and all that great stuff, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. doesn't have to be related to pedigree, just whatever is important to you. Ah. Well, that's very nice of you to ask. Uh, well, I'm from Maine. Uh, I was born in Boston, and then my family moved back to Maine, where my dad grew up in the northern part of the state when I was 12. 
And in this book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, I begin with an autobiographical preface that talks a little bit about my immersion in science fiction, fantasy, horror, Gothic literature soon after my move to Northern Maine. Uh, that may be because there was almost nothing to do up there. And so what, what else does a young teenager do but discover science fiction as a means of escape from reality? And uh, so uh, inspired by Mary Shelley's um, obviously autobiographical basis for much of her work, including Frankenstein and her other great work of science fiction, The Last Man, which I also discuss in this book, I decided I should begin my own book on Mary Shelley and her political science fictions of artificial life and artificial disaster um, with my own autobiographical reflections on growing up uh, and learning from science fiction a lot of lessons that I think only uh, dawned on me much later in life. I think there's a way in which science fiction gives us lessons that perhaps we're not capable of fully understanding when we're young. And uh, it's only decades later that it hits you, uh, you know, what the what the point of that story was. Uh, and I certainly feel that way going back to many of the science fiction works I loved when I was a kid um, as part of composing this book. Uh, and, and now I feel that I, I better I better understand them. Um, I, I, I don't know if the great works of science fiction can ever be fully understood. I think that they're truly philosophical in that way. They raise more questions and they give us answers. But um, I certainly feel now um, better able to draw um, uh, um, wisdom from these works that I cherished as a child. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, um, the escape part of, of fantasy and, and horror, that's... Uh, that makes sense because you know those of us who are drawn to to horror and and those type of things we we tend to like that you know so um thanks for sharing that eileen um so what got you or moved you towards the robot rights debate i know you're not typically mm -hmm. maybe seen in that light but um in your book mm -hmm. artificial life after frankenstein mm -hmm. the last chapter um coda is um very very strong as far as pushing towards um, the rights for artificial life, artificial children, and uh, very, very moving, by the way. But uh, what pushed you towards that research? Yeah. Thank you for asking. I, I think the process of, of really thinking about what the meaning of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was, I mean, you know, what, what does this great myth of the modern age mean for us today? And two of the most obvious parallels to um, real world issues that I saw between Mary Shelley's novel and our time were uh, debates about genetic engineering of children, which have really uh, uh, gone on since the, you know, the, the last few decades of the late 20th century, um, really started to peak in the late 90s when um, mammals were first cloned, Dolly the sheep, for example. Uh, and uh, and have escalated into the recent um, uh, in, in recent years as um, genetic engineering technologies such as CRISPR Cas9 have come to the fore and Nana and Lulu uh, two babies born in China in 2018 were revealed to have been modified in the germline through CRISPR Cas9. So it was the genetic engineering debate, as well as the rise of debates about AI and then the, the debates about, um, you know, the singularity, the idea that the, uh, we, 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 we will, if we're not already there, we're, we're coming up to a point in history when our um, intelligence will be met or surpassed by um, artificially intelligent creatures or machines, robots, androids. Um, and so on. Uh, and uh, this debate may have been captured best by the philosopher Nick Bostrom's book in 2014, a New York Times bestseller, Superintelligence, um, in which Bostrom, who is actually known as a philosophical defender of posthumanism, so is actually quite pro-technology uh, overall, wrote what I took to be quite a fear-mongering book about about the specter of AI of the of the of the the super intelligence on the horizon that that might actually destroy humanity um, so um, 
even though Bostrom says he's not inspired by science fiction, his book conjures that image of the the, the, the monster that with the tentacles that that spreads around the earth and and takes over everything that we as humans cherish um, and hold dear. So uh, it was those two debates and their to, to me, obvious parallels with Mary Shelley's science fiction, both in Frankenstein and her great pandemic novel, The Last Man, um, that led me to the robot rights debate. Um, but I am a theorist of human rights, uh, and I've devoted the bulk of my career to the history um, and philosophy of human rights, going back to the Enlightenment era. And most of my work has been on Mary Wollstonecraft, the mother of Mary Shelley, um, who I have argued in previous scholarship is the philosophical originator of the idea of universal human rights because she included women and children. Okay, most of the guys in the Enlightenment didn't bother. They talked about <laughs> the rights of man and they meant it overall. They did not mean women. They did not mean children. Mary Wollstonecraft, in my argument, makes it explicit that both women and children are covered under the idea of universal human rights or what she called the rights of humanity. Uh, and, and this is important for a number of reasons, uh, but, but one, uh, if you care about Mary Shelley, is to think about Mary Shelley as the intellectual heiress of her mother's ideas. Someone who read Wollstonecraft's ideas, you know, as a young teenager, um, when she first eloped with Percy Shelley, uh, and uh, um, and and uh, Percy Shelley, and she carried around Mary Wollstonecraft's works with them all over Europe during their um, subsequent marriage, and uh, and so Wollstonecraft's ideas permeate Frankenstein as well as The Last Man, uh, and I think the way in which in which her Mary Wollstonecraft's ideas shape Mary Shelley's is on this question of rights. Uh, and what Mary Shelley does is she gets us to imagine, do these rights apply to further creatures? Could If they apply to women and children, <laughs> could they apply to other creatures? And so that's the genius of Mary Shelley. And that's what she first does in Frankenstein with the making of the creature by a chemist, Victor Frankenstein. Uh, and, um, and the creature, in fact, does demand um, a right in the novel, and it, it's a right to live in the interchange of those sympathies which are necessary for my being, um, and and then suggests that he deserves a companion of some sort who's like him, um, with whom he can share um, friendship um, in an equal way. And Victor Frankenstein gives into this argument. Uh, it's not clear this is correct morally speaking, but he gives into it, uh, and uh, and a lot of the, the the bulk of the drama and conflict of the novel follows from Victor Frankenstein's assent to this um, this this demand for the fulfillment of this right to live in the interchange of those sympathies which are necessary for my being. So um, what I do in the coda to my book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, is I flesh this out philosophically. And I, I ask, well, what, is this, what would this mean? I, I, and I think in Frankenstein, Mary Shelley tells, is suggesting that, 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 that it wasn't right for Victor Frankenstein to, to build a, uh, a creature for um, a companion for his first creature, um, because that's effectively to make a slave to somebody else. Mm. Uh, and that's wrong, absolutely. Um, according to her own mother's theory of human rights. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, as well as Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley were all anti-slavery. Um, so, uh, uh, but what might be right about the creature's question or um, request is that all of us have a basic need for love. Um, we all have a basic need for love. And that may translate into a right to share love in different ways over in, in different ways over the course of our life cycle. So we may not all have a right, the same right to love um, um, as we do, you know, um, but we may have different ways of experiencing that right to love um, when we're young, when we are adults or when we are old. Um, and uh, Mary Shelley builds on her mother's thought to play out that thesis, I think, in both of her great works of political science fiction. Um, yeah, I agree. It's it's complex, too. Um, the Last Man is, uh, to me, a lot more complex 
in its um, storyline. And I, I still don't understand everything that she writes. But um, yeah, I, I think Shelley, and she just continues to be uh, an enigma in a lot of ways for a lot of people that actually read her book, not just watch the terrible interpretations in, in science fiction, but to really deal with the creature um, and to feel sympathy for him or it or however you want to classify the creature. But, I mean, you really do feel sympathetic when he's watching this family and and longing for understanding. And so, anyway, um, I think you helped. You answered one of my questions in that question about framing Mary Shelley's um, view and ethic. And I just want to know, Eileen, from your perspective, why do you think um, we should grant some type of rights to artificial life? And Mm -hmm. as you specifically talk about artificial children, and uh, I I do, I do believe that that is a, a forthcoming reality for us as we look at mm-hmm. artificial wombs and, and other things where it's not necessarily um, fully biologically human, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It is, yes. but it's also something else. So so why mm-hmm. should we consider rights for that entity? Yes, for sure. I mean, I think both Frankenstein and The Last Man offer up some, some good answers to this question. Um, I don't as novels, they don't give us hard and fast um, answers. They don't give us absolute answers, but they give us a range of possible answers, which then we can philosophically contemplate and debate amongst ourselves. So, let's take Frankenstein first. You know, what does Frankenstein um, uh, um, say about the question of why artificial creatures or artificial children should have rights? Well, here it's it's the creature's plea for companionship. Uh, he's, 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 I, I think, one one of, if not the loneliest uh, um, figures in, in literature. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's more lonely than Milton Satan. Milton Satan at least had all the little devils surrounding him in pandemonium. Uh, and uh, he's, he's arguably more isolated than, than any other figure in literature. Um, and that's what makes his observation of the DeLacy family and the cottage so poignant to us um, because we can really feel the way that he wants to be part of that family. Um, so uh, speaking from the creature's perspective, I think we can uh, begin to understand why it is we'd want to ascribe a right to companionship, family life, um, and even love, even the sharing of love especially for young and vulnerable creatures, no matter how or from what they are made. Um, it may be that that all creatures, and maybe especially creatures made after our own image, to go back to some Miltonic imagery that Mary Shelley uses in Frankenstein, um, that all creatures, um, especially those made after the human image, <laughs> which AIs and genetically engineered creatures are to some degree, um, they, they, they're going to need the same things um, that, that humans have typically needed, especially when they're young, vulnerable, and still developing their full potential, their potential to become ethical, responsible, social beings. And so what Frankenstein does is it gives us a worst case scenario. It takes away all of the things that, that we know children need, <laughs> family, love, parental guidance, um, an ethical framework for making decisions. It leaves the creature bereft of all those things. And what happens? The creature becomes a serial killer. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. We don't want that outcome. We, we want to avoid the worst case scenario. Uh, and, uh, and so using that thought experiment, um, we can um, deduce that, um, in fact, uh, all creatures, no matter how they are artificially shaped by the environment, and all of us are artificially shaped by the environment insofar as we are educated, um, insofar as we are shaped by our parents, insofar as we are shaped by our cultures and technologies, no matter how we are shaped by the wider environment, we're all in need of some basic um, uh, um, uh 
you know, some where we're ne we're in need of some basic things for our healthy development. Um, and uh, and so that's what I think Frankenstein suggests to us philosophically that the right to um, uh, to share love, the right to be free from abuse, the right to um, provision of basic needs for healthy development, the right to have an identity, to have a name and a family and a community, and the right to be free from discrimination, that all of these things are essential to, uh, to the healthy development of all artificially uh, shaped creatures, human or not. Yeah. And that, that's interesting um, because so many people in this discussion will argue that, well, the robot or the AI is it's meant to be a tool, right? It's, it's an instrument for us to, to use and abuse, right? And um, it is a slave, so to speak. And so should we even make these entities is another question. Um, I think yeah. I'd like right. to hear your response to, should we, should we be in the business of slave making? Yes, for sure. For sure. I get into this question most explicitly in the coda when I talk about uh, the, the moral issues raised by sex robots. Uh, and there's been a fair amount of scholarship on this question. And uh, I read a few essays and books on the topic. And uh, I also read a few novels that engage um, the ethics of making and using sex robots. And at first I thought, oh my gosh, my readers are going to think I'm crazy if I end this book with a mini essay on, on why it's wrong to make or create sex robots. Um, uh, but then I, I realized, no, it's actually a very important topic because in some ways, Mary Wollstonecraft started or pioneered this topic back in the 18th century when she pointed out that women were treated like dolls. Mm. I mean, that when, when like real live women were treated like dolls. They were bought and sold and traded and used for the sexual pleasure of men inside and outside of marriage, in prostitution, um, and uh, in, through sexual violence, um, and, uh, and, and in the institution of marriage, which was set up to favor only men at the time. And uh, so I thought, well, if Mary Wollstonecraft was making these arguments in 1792 in her vindication of the rights of women, and that work definitively shaped Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. In fact, Mary Shelley read the rights of women and noted it in her journal the year that she was writing Frankenstein. Um, it didn't seem like a stretch to me anymore mm -hmm. to, to leap to the question of sex robots today and in the future. So... Um, so what I did is I, I looked at a couple novels, but the one that was most salient was Frankenstein by um, uh, Jeanette Winterson, which had just come out in 2019. And it's a great novel. It's based on Frankenstein. Uh, and it's also based on a lot of research into AI. And it's a great novel if you're interested in AI ethics. I highly recommend it. She She's actually recently come out with a little treatise about AI ethics and technology ethics, which um, which is based on the research for this novel. So it's basically the nonfiction version of the, of the novel she published a few years ago. Uh, but in Frankenstein, uh, one of the subplots is about um, making, um, you know, sex robots that are designed to simply please please men. Um, and uh, And the men who buy and use them abuse them, you know, bash their heads in. Um, and the, the the robots are designed to simply have their parts replaced when necessary. So there's a moment in the novel where the sex bot manufacturer says, well, we can just get her a new head. Who cares? You know, um, you know, I don't, it's, he says something like sex can get a bit rough. I don't judge. Uh, and Jeanette Winterson, a feminist um, novelist par excellence, uh, you know, is using dry humor here, um, very dark humor, to point out a problem in our contemporary culture, which is that we still regard women as mere sex objects. And we, we you know, the, 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 our entire culture, maybe especially our technological culture, is really oriented towards this idea that women's bodies are there to instrumentalize and use for, for primarily male pleasure uh, and, um, and, and power. Um, and that's another very Wollstonecraftian point. Wollstonecraft was very concerned with the problem of uh, male domination in society uh, and the ways that women were being used to make men feel powerful. 
Uh, and I think Mary Shelley shares this concern, especially in her, her treatment of the creature's demand for a fe equal female companion. Now, while that request may seem innocent at first, um, you say, well, of course he, he needs a companion, right? And he's, he's saying she should be equal to him. That doesn't sound bad. And, and he actually doesn't say anything about sex, um, unlike the movies that we know from the 20th century that tend to represent the female companion as his bride, uh, you know, however unwilling, as in the 1931 James Whale, which is a great film. Uh, uh, you know, in, in the original novel, there's no discussion of, of, a, of a kind of a, a sexual companion. There's a discussion of an equal female companion. So this might seem innocent at first, but then um, when we look at uh, um, Victor Frankenstein and his uh, decision not to make the female and to um, to destroy her before she comes to life. Um, although we are horrified by Victor's decision um, and the way he destroys the female, which also reveals um, the ways in which Victor Frankenstein embodies that patriarchal um, attitude of, of, of absolute male domination over the female body. Um, the female body is simply a tool for male power. Um, on the other hand, the, the the decision of Victor Frankenstein to to abort the female creature um, can actually be understood um, in uh, feminist terms. I think, especially if um, we uh, we understand it um, as an attempt to uh, rewrite the past. Uh, you know, Victor is trying to. Um, go back to square one and say, I shouldn't have made the female in the first place. Uh, and um, now we can't rewrite the past. And it's it was wrong of Victor, I believe, in the novel to uh, to even begin making the female creature. He had no right to do that. No one has a right to make um, a slave um, for someone else or, you know, uh, or to, uh, right. Uh, no one has a, has a right to have a slave made for them. Uh, and um, but that said, uh, in, but for those reasons, um, Victor Frankenstein never should have made the female companion in the first place. Um, and uh, and I think that, so Mary Shelley builds into the novel, I think a very Wintersonian point, which is that uh, we, we shouldn't be making these female sex robots in the first place. Okay, that, that's ethical point number one. Number two is, um, if they already exist and society is set up in a way that they're going to be um, bought and sold or available on the market as they are now, um, and even they're even available with AI built in, and, and, and there are some spooky models where the the the, the, the sex robots are are, are uncannily like a, 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 a real live woman, uh, and so. Um, but if, if these robots are going to be bought and sold, I think what um, Winterson suggests in her novel is that um, we all need to think very deeply about, um, about, about what our relationship to these creatures might should be. And I think her novel, um, as well as Mary Shelley's um, Frankenstein, lead us down the path of, of, of thinking, you know, we probably are going to start needing to educate people to think differently about, about creatures such as um, sex robots or any kind of robot, as, um, because um, otherwise children will be raised in an environment where they will simply see robots as means for their own power and pleasure. Um, and, uh, and so if we want to avoid that outcome, we will need to train people and educate people to see um, robots more like fellow humans, fellow artificial creatures, um, than as um, mere dolls um, or objects to be um, uh, um, played with and discarded. Um, so, uh, so that's that's where that's you know how I've come to see my that's what I've come to see my contribution to the robot rights debate. It's one rooted in um, my work in both Wollstonecraft and Shelley in feminist literature, especially fiction, more broadly. Yeah, that is exactly um, what I guess from your work in your book is that, um, and you you take a a couple stabs at a few authors I'm not going to name, but I agree uh, with what you write. 
And um, I, I find some of the pushback that I've had is because I've also written on sex robots is that I'm, I'm viewed as uh, somebody against the liberation of sexual freedoms or something like that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of understand what they're saying. Like, you know, people should have a right to do whatever they want in their bedroom. I, I could, you know, that's none of my business. I don't want to know. Um, my concern is, and it's more of a philosophical concern is how does that form the imagination of the human and how does that translate into, um, how we treat other humans and even for the entity itself, I go a little bit farther and I think you do as well is that, you know, we should also be concerned about how we treat the entity uh, as an object in, in our environment. And you talk about artificial children and, um, and even having kids myself who interact with the robots, um, it's, it's much different between my son and my daughter, right? So my son, who is very gentle, not, you know, aggressive, so to speak, like a lot of boys that I know his age. And our, our Cosmo robot, he has a, a really deep attachment to it, not in an unhealthy way, but, you know, he, he wants it to wake up. And if he has to go to the bathroom, he's concerned that it's going to go to sleep before he gets back, you know. And so what if I took that robot one day and just smashed it in front of him, you know, Mm. or what if I uh, or what if he, you know, constantly abused it? And how would that translate into other relationships that he might form growing up? Because I know personally, (laughs) growing up in the South, kids who abused animals um, and Mm. It's, it's not a, a good behavior to pattern, mm-hmm. even if the creature is not sentient or whatever that means. Mm-hmm. You know? right. So I, I agree, Eileen. I think how we, we treat these objects is a reflection of our own heart and mind and philosophy and views. And um, sometimes it's, it's drawing out something we didn't know was there. And mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, this conversation, even whether it's about sex robots or delivery robots, whatever it is, you're, you're drawing out somebody's metaphysic. They may not even have thought about it, but what their views are about the human and the animal and the planet, it's, it kind of comes to light in, in robots in a way that it may have never come out, you know, if those things didn't exist. Uh, especially humanoid robots. Yes. Yes. Yeah, no, for sure. I, you know, I think a lot of my interest in this topic has arisen from being a parent uh, to a young boy and, uh, you know, like other young children, he's interested in robots. He's interested in um, all sorts of fantastical creatures um, that display various forms of artificial intelligence. And, uh, and, and I, 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 celebrate that part of his development. I think it's uh, such an essential part of childhood that we all cultivate our imaginations in the richest possible way. Um, But, you know, you also need to worry about uh, the directions the imagination can go um, if it's left unguided. And this gets back to that Frankensteinian problem of the creature being left to his own devices and having, having no support and no guidance, no family, no parent to help him. Uh, in navigating his wider environment and the abuse he faces in it. And so I think with children and robots, I think what we want to do is actually um, encourage them to to treat robots um, uh, with respect and and if not um, love, then care. Um, And, you know, some children may May, may have genuine, um, genuinely strong attachments to um, robot, ro- whether actual robots or robot toys. Uh, and, um, and they might even love their, their robots. Um, and I think that's fine. Uh, um, what, um, what I worry about is um, robots being used as tools for modeling abuse. And so I, uh, when I was researching this topic, it it began to dawn on me that being a New Englander, I had been raised not to damage or or abuse or deface um, 
material objects that were non-sentient. So furniture, walls, you know, <laughs> other objects in the home. My, my parents raised me to think it was wrong. It was actually morally wrong to, to vandalize, uh, deface, mutilate property, um, whether that was yours or somebody else's. Uh, and, and I think that's a really interesting point because it, it would be as wrong for me to say, um, harm my own doll, right, as it would be to um, take a crayon and write on my parents' wall <laughs> uh, in their ethical system, which is, I think, very New England. Uh, it's a very New England outlook, I think. But, you know, that that New England outlook, I think, is rooted in, in uh, varieties of Christianity, um, which, which do teach people um, to simply have respect for all creation, whether that creation is made by God or if it's artificially made by humans. Uh, and uh, and if we recall the Genesis story, which Milton puts into poetry, um, even humans in theory are made artificially by God because we're made we're made from you know uh, mud, right? We're made from 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 uh, from the earth uh, and uh, or from dust. And and so and to dust and ashes we shall return. Uh, and so in some sense, even our governing um, origin story, our creation story um, uh, in the Christian tradition, at least, um, and, and, and the Hebrew tradition um, suggests that humans, too, are artificially made. And for that reason, we should have reverence for all artificially made creation or creatures. So in my book, I really played on that theme of the, um, uh, the echoes between the concepts of creation, creature, um, uh, and, um, and that, that creation, um, creation tends to be understood as a religious concept, um, and creature tends to be understood as a biological or scientific concept, but it's important metaphorically to understand them as overlapping terms. And, uh, I think it really helps us to get past some of the biases we have against mm -hmm. the idea of robot rights when we start thinking about creation and creatures, um, as, uh, congruent concepts. Uh, and um, it allows us to get past the idea that somehow we as um, organic forms of life somehow have priority over um, other creatural forms of life in the world. Um, and we might look at robots today, which are non-sentient, um, as deserving of respect and care at the very least. Uh, um, in, in the same way as we would um, encourage children to have show respect and care for um, uh, property around the familial home, for example, or property of their neighbors. Um, and, and, and these are, these are basic um, rules of humanity, basic principles of humanity, which are um, expressed in etiquette and other manners and in cultures around the world. So not solely Christian or, or, or Jewish traditions, but in, in, in cultural traditions around the world going back to ancient times. And uh, I found myself in writing this essay on robot rights at the end of my book, really realizing that so much of um, the debate about rights in general, whether we're talking about human rights or, or we're trying to extend human rights to other entities, including robots, um, so much of this debate on rights goes back to this basic relational ethics, yeah. which to me is rooted in um, the myths, the legends, the um, religious traditions, the origin stories, the creation stories of ancient human cultures. And, um, and for that reason, I think Mary Shelley's work is so important because she gives us two of the governing myths of our time. She gives us the the myth of of the of the creature made through science, right? And she gives us the myth of um, the the last man who survives a, a cataclysmic um, disaster of a pandemic. Uh, and these these two myths animate our contemporary science fiction to the point that we 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 know Mary Shelley's novels without even having read them because we've seen so many films and TV shows that are based on their premises. Um, and, uh, and so Mary Shelley had a very myth-like way of, of engaging with these moral or ethical questions about how we should treat one another, regardless of how we are made or shaped by our environment. And, um, and I think for that reason, I, I found myself realizing that Mary Shelley very well, uh, may have 
been um, self-consciously as a writer going back over this ancient um, legendary mythic religious material um, and uh, rewriting it, you know, uh, in new forms so that we as modern readers could um, adopt some of those insights in how we uh, learn to regard not only one another as humans, but we learn to regard other artificial creatures. And we learn to take responsibility for the artificial creatures um, and creations that we make. And this is where her novel, The Last Man, becomes relevant because as we live in the era of COVID-19, we've, we've all become aware of the ways that pandemics are not natural disasters. Pandemics are created by human artifice and politics uh, and conflicts. And uh, they're certainly exacerbated by them. Mm. Uh, and, 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 um, and so what I think The Last Man does in the spirit of Frankenstein, but on a global scale, as it were, is to uh, encourage us to think about our our global responsibility for our creations, whether those creations are a child, <laughs> um, a creature, um, or a you know or an epidemic. <laughs> and you know, and so uh, today we are faced with this this mind-boggling question of, of individual um, and collective responsibility for COVID-19 and how do we how do we how do we finally end it and as we as we go into um, the second year or we're well into the second year we're going into the third year of the pandemic um, you know we uh, we I think we should all look back to Mary Shelley as a model um, of philosophical thinking about uh, about responsibility for the creatures and creations we make, um, and, um, and 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 what does it mean to be responsible in a in a loving and caring way, um, a fully humane way, um, not to be responsible in a cold-hearted way. Uh, you could say Victor Frankenstein does that when he he terminates the female creature midway in front of the the first creature. So the first creature is horrified by the loss of this companion he was tantalized with. Um, um, that that's a cold-hearted style of responsibility. What Mary Shelley, I think, wants us to contemplate is the possibility of a fully humane, um, emotionally connected responsibility um, for not simply our immediate loved ones and family, but for the whole world. And that's what she does in The Last Man, is she pans out and forces us to think, what does it mean to be responsible for the whole creation? Mm. Uh, so not simply your discrete contributions to the, to the creation, um, but what would it mean to love the whole world? Um, and that, that's what I think her, her ultimate ethos is. And it's, it's such a wonderful, mind-boggling ethos um, and one that I think um, could spur philosophical thought for, for centuries yeah. going forward. Absolutely. <laughs> What beautifully said, um, and I think too, even with Victor in her novels, the way that he reacts to his own creation, right? It's its eyes are ugly. Um, you know, he takes the most beautiful pieces, supposedly going to put this together, and it's going to be a beautiful creation, right? But then it's it's ugly, and um, she really goes into detail, and I, I think some of that might have to do with children that she's lost, and and seeing that up close um, and the tragedy of it. And so I, I don't know, this always really stuck with me how she describes the eyes in um, one of the earlier editions in the preface. It's just really ugly and, and disgusting. Um, and you think about newborns and their eyes are so pure and white mm -hmm. and uh, unclouded, unmuddled. And I think about that and I think about how, you know, we, we are driving all this commerce and we're driving all this um, production of these machines, whether we realize it or not, as consumers. And even like you said, with, with COVID-19, uh, a lot of this pandemic is exacerbated by not taking responsibility, like it or not, for, for caring for other humans and um, so many different things that we've all struggled with over the last couple of years. And now we get to the point where we're kind of seeing the fruits of our labor, so to speak. We're just now beginning to see some of the ugliness of, of AI and, and robots. Um, and I think the question, like you say, is, you know, we can't go back. We can't 
unopen the box, so to speak, or unmake the creatures. They're, they're here in a way, they will be here more so in the future. But how are we going to ethically respond to them? Uh, not just as a, from a Christian perspective or a Western male white perspective, um, which is so much so, like you say, an enlightenment way of thinking about robots mm-hmm. um, and from a position of power and, and money. But, you know, how do we think about robots that are going to be used in Eastern contexts, you know, like Japan and other places where mm-hmm. it does have more than just a instrumental view to it. Once it becomes a part of your house, mm-hmm. it is a part of the family, so to speak. And, and I, I think your book and others have really challenged me to see it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just a piece or a piece of technology that I buy and, you know, I can throw away, but, you know, and not that the Roomba is going to get it right, so to speak. <laughs> or that we're going to or, or not yet. Free. Not yet. Yeah, I'm not going to set the Roomba free into the forest. Uh, yeah. But you know, it, should I should I be using this robot to sweep my floor when I can? You know, are there you know people who are disabled that might need it, or you know, are there places yeah. where it's yes, absolutely. But for me. As an able-bodied person, should I use that technology? Uh, anyway, so those are those are just things that I think about sometimes, and and I think we have so many different places to have that conversation with our children um, and with other people about what we consume and the ethics behind even things like chocolate and other things. That there are some deep philosophical conversations that have to happen behind what we buy. And I live in the South, and it's it's not it's like. It's like a cognitive jolt sometimes to really to think about this stuff. We don't even have recycling where I live. It, it's terrible. But, um, you know, we just consume and buy and create. And it's it's profit-driven. But then there are these creatures that are coming and um, that are here. And, you know, we should consider them as a part of creation. As, like you say, we are part of creation. And one of the things um, as a theologian that really bothers me when people talk about the creation narrative is they don't get that part of Genesis 1 and 2, which is about responsibility. That if I don't take care of the planet, if I don't take care and cultivate um, animals in a way that they flourish, then I die in a way that the animals and the planet will not. They will continue to go on. They don't. The foxes don't need me, right? You know, but I, I need oxygen from the trees and all these things. Um, and I think Mary Shelley kind of helps us see that um, in a deeper way, in a way that only myth can really communicate those deep philosophical truths and transcend culture. So I'm grateful for your work, Eileen. I, I really appreciate this book. I highly encourage people to buy it. Um, and I, I believe it's free shipping through you mercy of pen press. Pen press. Yes, that's right. If you buy it through pen press, um, I believe they have um, free shipping. Uh, and uh, if anyone has any questions about that, feel free to email me uh, at Notre Dame and, uh, and I'll be happy to um, see if I can get you a discount code. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. And uh, I hope many people will buy it. I hope it does extremely well. Uh, one last question before we go, Eileen. Uh, you mentioned horror. I want to know what's your favorite horror film. Uh, uh, well, there are so many great Frankenstein <laughs> films. Um, but Frankenstein to me is not a horror film because I believe in the spirit of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Most of the films, including um, James Whale's 1931 um, and 1935 films, uh, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, the vast majority of Frankenstein films, beginning with Wales classics, have, have always humanized the creature, treated the creature really as a child, which is the way Mary Shelley conceptualized him, an abandoned child. Uh, and um, so we're, we, we're trained to have sympathy with the creature. Um, so I, I don't really think of the creature as a true monster. Um, uh, I think of Victor Frankenstein as the monster for abandoning his child after making him. And so... I would say in horror as a result, um, I would say The Exorcist, uh, because The Exorcist to me is a highly philosophical film about um, about the kind of the dialectic between religion and science and uh, what we know 
and how we know it. Um, what can you know through faith? What can you know through reason? What can you know through empirical study of the world? Uh, and it dramatizes this beautifully, I think. I, I recently saw a stage adaptation in London a few years ago, and I was blown away by how well this adaptation dramatized this problem of belief. Like, on what basis do we believe in what we believe? Uh, and, um, and, and to what extent can we know anything um, for sure? Uh, and so that that so I would say the Exorcist um, gets at those philosophical questions so beautifully through horror. Mm. So it it is a scary um, oh, yeah. film, uh, it, it, um, for sure. Um, the play I saw was not so much scary as spooky, um, and I think that's interesting because I I read the novel as well, and um, I found the novel pretty scary, um, uh, though not as scary as the film from the early seventies. <laughs> Um, and uh, and so, but the, but the, what the play did is show that um, the story of the Exorcist can be treated more on a philosophical level. Um, there was something about the way the play was staged that it, it led you to have some sort of emotional distance from the horrifying things transpiring. Uh, and perhaps because it was staged, not film, um, it could not be as graphic as the film is. And I think the film has a lot of jump scares, uh, you know, and, and, and on the stage, they, they at least veered away from that towards a more of a psychological treatment of, of the, of the subject matter. Um, the big question was, you know, is this a demonic possession or not? And on what basis do we know that? And, um, and, and I think the, the play left me, um, uh, uncertain. The play left me uncertain. I, I think the film, suggest strongly that it that it was uh and and i think that it, in some ways the film betrays the original premise of the book which was to raise that question in the first place Can, on what basis could you know such a thing um uh whether from the standpoint of religion or science um so that's great that's great great choice um and truly it is terrifying um <laughs> and even the history of that uh filming like it was. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I, I I read about that a few years ago, but yeah, there were a lot of creepy things that happened, right? Yeah. No. No. Thanks. Um, well, Eileen, thank you so much for uh, for coming on today. I know you have another book that's that's recently published. Uh, if you want to promote that as well, we we'd love to know about it and tell us where we could find it and uh, what it's about. I am currently writing a sequel to Artificial Life After Frankenstein. It's under contract with Penn Press. So there'll be a Mary Shelley trilogy uh, by me from Penn, which I'm very honored to have the opportunity to do since Penn has a great history of publishing books on and about Mary Shelley um, in British Romanticism. So uh, my, my third installment will be called The Spectre of Pandemic. Uh, Mary Shelley and post-apocalyptic political thought. So taking some of my inspiration from our current pandemic, I'll be looking at primarily The Last Man as the first great modern pandemic novel and thinking about its legacies for existential philosophy and post-apocalyptic literature from you know the 19th century through works by Octavia Butler and Margaret Atwood. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for joining us and I encourage everyone to buy your books, uh, especially Artificial Life After Frankenstein, and also be on the lookout for uh, the next one. So, Eileen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Josh. See you on Twitter. Okay. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, make sure to follow me on Twitter and on my website uh, for all the projects that are going on, joshuacasesmith.org. I uh, really appreciated this project and the time that each scholar gave. So I'll see you soon, and we'll be back with more scholars and more jokes and thoughts about robots. Take care.